2 Corinthians chapter 5, before we launch into uh, a big amount of time in the book of Genesis, which will start in a couple weeks, we'll go through the first 11 chapters, um, we're going to do a, a brief two-part series, which I think is just uh, incredibly important. And it's important for uh, us as a church, I believe it's important for uh, you as, as Christians to have a real basic understanding. So there's a booklet uh, that when you walked in, you probably walked right by, and that's okay. Maybe some of you grabbed it. And um, probably, um, uh, much like Paul, I'm probably a better writer than I am a speaker. So I write stuff down so that you can read it uh, and then ignore everything I say uh, and get the better version. But this is going to explain uh, kind of what I'm talking about over the next two weeks. Uh, and so that is for your reference. It's online, but it's also just there. You can grab it on, on the way out. So a little bit of history for those uh, many know, but some don't. Um, we planted uh, this uh, church in 2014. And um, I just say we were here. It was really 2013. But 2014, we weren't called Restoration Road Church. That was not the name. Uh, we began as an extension of Damascus Road Church, a church that I... Uh, led and helped plant in 2006, and it's still going and thriving in Marysville. And at that time, when I say elders, I'm talking about elders of both churches. We were all one church. We envisioned when we planted a transition toward a more independent church like we're experiencing now. But at the time we started, we became what was and often is called one church meeting in two uh, locations. And despite the pragmatic benefits of that, which I think there are many, um, that model also has great costs to it. And the complexity of having just shared resources and, and shared events and, and shared staff and traveling preachers and all these things um, spread across two cities just kind of end up proved too taxing. And so um, we also uh, kind of wrongly assumed uh, that our geographic proximity, so Marysville and Snohomish, and what we thought was a, a somewhat of a cultural similarity, we're all in Snohomish County, um, that would make our cooperation really easy and really fruitful. And what we found is that uh, within a couple months, we realized just how much can change in 14 miles and 25 minutes. It's a lot. You don't think that, but it really maybe um, consider that. So even though we were on... Uh, the same mission and still are, and no, we have the same message and really the same uh, Messiah. Jesus was doing something different here, and I don't say uh, better or worse, I just mean difference. No, almost was, was God was gathering a different people in a different place, and by 2014, uh, we changed our name. So prior to 2014, obviously, we were Damascus Road, Snohomish, but we changed it and we uh, kept our last name, Road Church. And we did that for lots of reasons, partially pragmatic, didn't want to rename every road thing we had to something else and made it easier. But also we wanted to celebrate our history. And we wanted to make sure that we knew that we were from a certain family. And that family began in Marysville, and so we kept Road Church. Uh, but we changed our first name, unless you're George Foreman, you don't name all your kids George. And so um, we wanted a different first name, and the first name provides some uh, unique identity, and so we chose restoration to talk about our unique character. Uh, and we believed that restoration not only aptly described what 
our church's places like physically in Snohomish, this antique place. It describes the culture pretty well. But it also, and what I'm going to talk today about is clarifies our mission. What our mission is, and particularly um, helps us understand a complete picture of the Gospel. Now, it wasn't also until this year, 2015, that even though we changed all those things and, and we had our own you know, signs and, 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 and names and all those things, uh, that I, being kind of the, the vision and, and preaching pastor here, I, we, the elders, never really set a unique vision for our church. We just kind of grabbed what, would, what worked and what we did and we'll just do it here. And that can work, um, but it also can't. And so we, I started asking some really hard questions like, why does our church exist? And there are certainly Sunday school answers to that. Um, but what reason do we exist and what makes our church unique? And I, when I say unique, I don't mean like better than the church down the street. Just mean what, what, what's unique about us? What or how do we contribute to a, a better city? And why do we do what we do? Do we have any purpose for it, or do we just do stuff because that's what church culture dictates? Do we just have certain ministries and certain things, and is our service even ordered a certain way because, well, this is what churches do? We actually ask those questions, in case you're wondering. Uh, we try to come to answers, and that's why you see us change stuff often, because we want to be as biblical as we can and, and as God-honoring as we can. So, I'm trying to answer those two questions in this series. Namely, who we are and what we do. And at the conclusion of this really two-week series, my hope is that every member of our church at Restoration Road Church, that you will feel equipped to have what I'm going to call a napkin conversation with somebody about who we are and what we do. And you know what I mean by that? Like, you can explain it on that. Just, just go. Like, this is who we are. This is what we do about our identity, particularly in Christ, and our church, the Bride of Christ. And so you're going to hear a phrase often. It's called, we are restored to restore. Restored to restore. Restored to restore. You're going to get so sick of that phrase, but I hope that you get so sick of it because it's meaningful to you and it just kind of flows off your tongue to explain not only who you are in Christ, but what we do as the Bride of Christ. We're going to... I'm going to take, you could take it out of other places, but I'm going to take the main text out of 2 Corinthians 5, and I'll read that to you, beginning at verse 14. And this is, represents the spirit of, of where we're going to go. Verse 14 begins like this. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, it comes the Gospel, that one has died for all, Jesus, Therefore all have died, and He, Jesus, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation." If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, not will be a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their sins or trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you, therefore, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're going to go back to that passage a couple times. Someday I'll preach 2 Corinthians when I feel worthy. I'll preach it a little bit today. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible. But the implication of being a new creation is this, if you just think about this logically, that at some point you were once an old creation. The fact that we are restored, that's what I'm going to use for new creation, that we are restored means there was a time when we were brand new. There was a time when we were new. And then, something happened. And there was a time when we were broken. And then, if we are a new creation, there comes a time when we are made new again. When we are restored. So, if what I love about restoration, that, that thing, is that you pretty much can buy... Uh, a piece of junk, put it on the wall, and they're like, oh, look how artistic that is. So Pinteresty, right? It's awesome. So like, there's a radio downstairs. I kid you not, I bought it for 10 bucks on the streets of Mount Vernon. Did nothing to it. There's still cobwebs in it. I'm like, boom, looks good. Okay? That clock at one point was brand new. It is not new now. And it's not restored right now. But if we were to restore it, then you'd get the picture. It was new, got old and broken and nasty and cobwebby and didn't work anymore, and it can be made new again should someone act upon it. So we're going to talk particularly about those three things. And so in order to start that, we have to talk about what God did in the beginning. Who God is. In the beginning, and we'll speak about this often in Genesis, God created. And before, obviously, we can talk about what we are now, we need to talk about what God created. And creation began with a good God creating a really good world. How do I know it's good? God said so. That's the determiner of what's good. Whole another sermon coming on that. God didn't create out of obligation. He didn't create out of need. But He created out of a desire to display His awesomeness. And in that creation, prior to Genesis chapter 3, there were only two things that were not good. One is implied and one is stated. It was not good to disobey God. And it was not good for man to be alone. Dare I say that God wanted us to love Him, particularly through obedience to His Word, and love people. 
He creates a man and a woman, and he teaches the man who we assume teaches his bride to obey, and his bride is there to help him obey. And he calls this relationship and this uh, union, if you will, very good, and he enjoys fellowship with his two, our first parents' creations, Adam and Eve, for some time. And all is well until men believe the lie that happiness is found apart from God and His Word. You realize that's what's wrong with the world, I hope. Men and women believe the lie that happiness exists apart from God and His Word. So they believe that, and they rebel, and they disobey God's Word, and sin enters the world, and what God creates, He curses. And the relationship with God, which was new, is broken. And the relationship with people that was new and wonderful is broken. As you see, the man and women start to accuse one another. And the relationship with the self of, who am I? Am I the Lord, or is He the Lord? Am I the one who calls the shots, or is He? And it was confused and broken. And the relationship even with the world, as work became hard, and things around them began to break, was broken. And as God, you'll see at the end of Genesis 2, sees His broken family, if you will, He says, lest they reach out and eat of the tree of life, let's kick them out of this beautiful garden they're in. You go, whoa, that's pretty mean. You just cursed them for like half a chapter, and now you're kicking them out of their home? But it was because God didn't just create, and God didn't just curse, but He also made a promise to one day bring them back in the garden. But in order to bring them back in the garden, He had to push them out. Because He didn't want them to stay in that state of brokenness and sin forever and eat of the tree of life and perpetuate shame and guilt and brokenness. So He's like, i got to shove them out. And so He does because He has a plan. And He makes a promise to them. Even though he's going to shove him out into chaos, he says there's going to be a Savior who will one day born, be born that will bring them back into the garden, namely into relationship with God again. That's what God did. That's how the story starts. That's important to know that we were made new, made good. You can't talk about being restored if there wasn't brokenness and a no need for restoration state. And so the story starts where you look around and you go, something's wrong with the world. And you don't have to be you know, a Christian to see that. Everyone knows that something's wrong with the world. So we talk about what God did. He created a good world. Man rebelled and we begin to see what man did as you see from Genesis chapter 4 through the whole Bible. It's funny we often ignore the Old Testament because we believe we're going to go in there and read a bunch of holy guys that do really good things and we're not going to you know, basically muster up to their level. Let me comfort you by the fact that they're all messed up and it's actually really enjoyable and comforting to see that you are no less, uh, you know, or they are no less holy or more holy, you know what I mean, than you are. 
They're weirdos, wackos, nut jobs, just like us. So man sins, and sin comes into the world, flows because of their decision, and it doesn't take very long for men to forget the promise of their Creator. And even though man, according to Romans 1, knew that God existed, they refused to give Him thanks for what He had created. They refused to, to honor or believe His promises, and they refused to worship Him. And because of Adam's sin, everyone who was born became sinful. But they also willfully chose, according to the desires, to turn their back on God. And they became guilty by their own choice as well. But they still sought to answer questions of identity and questions of purpose and questions of truth, but they did all those things apart from Him. And in that pursuit, men are miserable. No matter what they tell you. Trying to figure out what is true. Trying to figure out what their purpose is. But they'll never admit that. Enslaved to sin, they seek their own glory and they fall well short of God's. And they find themselves indebted to God, sentenced to die, unable to save themselves, and unwilling to turn for help. And as a result, men suffer. Sin makes us broken. Sin makes us imperfect. Sin makes us rebellious. And sin makes us blind to that fact. Sin breaks us in the sense of like having arms out of socket and yet we pretend that we are still strong and we can still do the job. And even though we are weak, we fake it. And we hate as we should not and we don't love as much as we should, and even the love we do love with falls short of what true love is. And men reject God's authority and they seek to rule their own life and what they find themselves in a place of suffering. And here's what it's like. And for those who are not in Christ and those who don't hold tightly to the cross experience this all too often, and even Christians who forget the cross experience this. We find ourselves filled with guilt over what we've done. We find ourselves filled with shame over what has been done to us. We find ourselves feeling dead as if life is just meaningless. We, we feel confused as truth changes like the waves in an ocean. Like, what is true? We find ourselves overwhelmed and when we're suffering we feel alone. And we feel despairing as if there is no hope beyond what we can see. And it doesn't feel like we can see much of anything. That's what sin does to us. And so what happens, and this happens to everybody, we feel that brokenness and that guilt and that shame and that confusion. So what do we do? We start looking for a Savior. We start looking for something to save us from all that stuff that everyone feels. In other words, everyone has a Savior. Everyone knows and looks around and says, the world is not the way it's supposed to be, and I don't feel the way that I think people should feel. I need something to fix me, and they look for it, but they look for it apart from the one place it's found. They can't dismiss that 
what C.S. Lewis calls that God-shaped void of emptiness and say, start filling it with anything they can to make them feel better. People long for meaning. They long for contentment. They long for hope. But they avoid the one place it can be found. They won't turn to the Lord. And there are really primarily two ways to avoid God while you seek saviors. And everyone in here has pursued or is pursuing one or the other. There are two ways to avoid God. Be really bad or be really good. Some men and women attempt to find salvation by worshiping idols. They become very self-indulgent in substances and people, in careers and whatever in order to avoid relationship with Jesus. And they make the gifts of God into gods themselves. Pursuing money and power and sex and all these things. But there are other men who are just as sinful. They just are the other side of the sin coin. Instead of making or finding salvation in worshiping idols, they try to save themselves by worshiping themselves. And they avoid relationship with Jesus by living out whatever laws they feel like they need to do in order to earn their salvation so that God will owe them. You have the prodigal son and the prodigal older brother. Both in need of rescue, but in different ways. Both trying to fix something that they know is broken and both failing to find the one place where it is. So you have God creating a good world. God saying, this is who I am. It's awesome. What have you done? And men sin and they suffer as a result, but yet they seek out saviors. They know they need salvation. So you have this picture of, we were once not in need of restoration. Now we definitely are. We know what God did. We know who He is. We know what man did. We know who we are and what we became. But then we have to talk about Jesus. What Jesus did. See, the Gospel changes everything. The Gospel, the the good news, it is a proclamation. It's not advice about what you have to do to experience restoration. It is a proclamation of what has been done. I hope you realize the differences. Too often, the church has taught that the Gospel is, is almost this kind of advice and instructions. The Gospel is a proclamation about what you ought to believe has happened. That a change has occurred. The Gospel, simply stated, is the good news that God became a man in Jesus Christ. That He lived this life that we should have. And He died the death that we should have. In our place. And three days later, He rose from the dead proving that He was who He said He was, the Son of God. And He offered salvation and restoration to anyone who would repent and believe. That's the Gospel. We should all be able to say the Gospel in 60 seconds or less. There it is. By grace, and by grace I mean undeservedly. God didn't have to do anything. He would have been justified when they sin going, start over, done. 
But he had a plan. And a plan to display his grace. By grace, God reaches out to those who refuse to listen. Who thought they knew better. And he loves them. Sinners. Rebels. Enemies. Hostiles. By grace, He sacrifices His sinless Son to rescue a sinner. By grace, we who were slaves to sin, defined by our sin, captivated by our sin, dead in our sin, are given a new life. A new identity. And in Christ, you are no longer defined This is what we forget as Christians. If you're a Christian, you are not defined by what you have done or what you have not done. You are not defined by what has been done to you. You are defined, for those who put their faith in Christ, by what Jesus has done for you. Period. That's where our mind must dwell especially when we start to feel awesome about ourselves. Look what I've achieved. Dude, that's Jesus in you, bro. Or I haven't achieved anything. doesn't matter. Jesus did it all. We cannot hear that enough because we're tempted in our flesh to listen to that voice in us that's not the Holy Spirit and you need to tell it to shut up that says, you haven't done enough. Or do you know what you've done? And our response is simply, no, but I know what Jesus did. And it's for me. See, in the beginning, we were formed in the image of God and we were designed to reflect God's greatness, to display His awesomeness. And when men rebelled, that image like a mirror was shattered. And even though in a shattered image, mirror, you can still recognize a little, like, okay, I kind of see a little bit of image there. It's pretty incomplete. Men, even in their sin, are made in the image of God, but it's a pretty deformed image. But in Christ, guess what? That image is restored. Like a mirror that starts to be put back together. And it's not perfect yet, but you can see the picture more clearly. And by grace, I believe that when we trust in terms of our salvation and the personal work of Jesus Christ, we begin to be restored to who God created us to be. We are restored to who God created us to be. And though it can be said very, and we'll talk about this next week, that we are being restored, In truth, there are some things that are definitively and permanently transformed right now. There are some things that have changed right now, and you may be growing in them, but they are certain. Trusting in the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ means, according to John 3, right, we've been born again. We've been Born again. You don't go back, words. You're born again and you are new. And you're going to grow. You're going to go from that toddler to that adult, but you are new. 
We don't have just an improved life. And Joel Osteen, God bless him. We don't have just a better life. Right? We have a brand new life. The old is gone. The new has come. It is here. When we become Christians, we are baptized. And that's not just you know checking a box. The Bible says that is deeply symbolic of a real transformation that has occurred in our heart. Romans 6 says it this way, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Do you realize when you're baptized, it's not just, okay, check that box because I obeyed Jesus' first command. It is I'm being buried in the water and I'm coming out a brand new person. And that change has already occurred, but it is the public display of that change. In many ways, it's like a public funeral of the death of the old self and the newness of life. And through faith in Christ, all those things that broke, we have a new relationship with God and we have a new relationship with others and we have a new relationship with the self and we have a new relationship with the world. We were old and we've been made new. And so, as a church, what we're going to start talking about are these, these four identities. Because when we talk about new, what does that even mean to be new? What was I and what am I? And we'll talk about this often as a means to go, when we say we are restored, I know what that means. There are four things. We were idolaters. And we have been restored as worshipers. We are first and foremost sons and daughters of God. We are first and foremost sons and daughters of God. We are sons and daughters of God before we are mothers or fathers or husbands or wives or employees or anything. We are first and foremost sons and daughters of God. Of God. That is what defines us. We are worshipers. And all of life and everyone worships. I believe all of life is worship. Everyone worships something or someone. We were created to worship. We often use worship, but what does worship mean? I'll tell you what it means. Worship is when you place something or someone as supreme in your life. And the supremacy of that something or someone governs everything in your life. You look to that thing for meaning. You look to that thing for identity. You look to that thing for security. You look to that thing for hope. You look to that thing for joy. And we have, because of sin, a worship disorder. That's what idolatry is. And it's not that you just, you know, do bad things occasionally. No, you make bad things, and sometimes good things supreme in your life. And the supremacy of that thing dictates what you see, what you believe, how you perceive everything. In Christ, we go from idolaters to worshipers. Instead of seeking whatever we can find to save us from whatever hell we can imagine or are trying to avoid, we are captivated by the cross of Christ. We are restored to worship through His Word, by His Spirit. And instead of turning 
good things into God things, we worship Jesus through all things. And the deeper the Gospel goes into our hearts, the deeper we understand that that the Son of God died for my sins, that I am so bad that I needed the Son of God to atone for my sins, and yet I am so loved that the Son of God atoned for my sins, we are captivated and we begin to worship God in everything we do. And it goes wider into our lives. And so instead of money becoming a God, it becomes a gift that we can use to worship God. Instead of relationships becoming things we use to try and suck out whatever we feel like we need, we use them to glorify God. Our careers, our families, our time, everything becomes a tool to glorify God. We basically live for Jesus. That's what verse 15 said, right? That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died? Worshippers. The second thing we are restored to, we were lost and alone, and we have been restored to family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. We were alone, even if we were with other people. We were alone. We were self-centered. We were self-focused. We were self-reliant. We were self-concerned. We were self-seeking. I need no one but myself. And then God said, no, you're wrong. Do you remember what I told you in the beginning? What? It was not good for you guys to be alone. So what I said was not good. Why do you keep thinking it's good? I'm independent. You're an idiot. Because you're going apart from what God designed the world to be like. We're family. And though we don't often act like that, let's be honest, it's difficult. That is what we are. And we're learning to do that. We're a diverse group of wingnuts that are all together. And we're family. And we celebrate the differences. And we celebrate the weirdness. And we do things that family do. And we get bugged at each other. But because we're family, we don't say, I'm done. Right? My son can't go, that's it, I'm done. I'm out of here. Like, <laughs> going anywhere, son. We're family. Even if you go out that door, I'm right after you. We're family. You see, we, we make s- salvation so personal and so private and so individualistic, we ignore the fact that Ephesians 5 says Jesus died for the church, for a people, not just a person. The Gospel of Jesus has not just saved us individually. He has brought us into a universal and a local family known as the church. And people say, well, do I have to go to church to be a Christian? No, but Christians go to church. Why wouldn't you? I've talked about in, in several of our classes this week, we're going over the same stuff, the idea of a body. Like, you realize the, the church is called the body, and what you're trying to tell me is if your hand that you can live on your own by yourself and be successful? How many cut-off hands do you see walking around by themselves? None. Well, there was one in that TV show, right, that was weird. But the body is designed to heal itself. 
And if you get disconnected from the, you take your finger, your finger, okay, arm, a shoulder, whatever, you take that finger and you put it over there, it's going to die. But when that finger is attached to that hand and that hand is attached to the elbow, I don't think we get stronger together. We need each other. You are needed and you have needs. Through faith in Christ, we are adopted into the household of God. And community is not optional, it's necessary. We are being built up together in love. And not only do we live for Jesus as worshipers, we love as Jesus loved us. We love one another. We're to be family. And we have been restored. Last two. Worshippers, sons and daughters of God, family, brothers and sisters in Christ, but we're also disciples. We were wanderers. We were lost. We didn't know what was up, what was down, what was left, what was right, but we became disciples of Jesus. Followers of Jesus. We walk behind Jesus. We do what Jesus does. We go where Jesus goes. Not only sons and daughters of God and brothers and sisters of Christ, we are men and women of the way. You realize in the early church, they were not called Christians. They were called people of the way. Why do you think they were called that? Because they lived differently. There was a way to live. There was a way to love. There was a way they did relationships that looked different than the world. Remember those guys of the way? They have a way about them. And it was a God way. Before Christ, before we were restored, we're in the state of brokenness where we are children tossed to and fro by waves, falling left and right, not knowing what we are doing, following really whatever's popular, whatever might be pleasurable or not painful, whatever's convenient. But as disciples of Christ, we become committed to following Jesus' life and teaching. And we are motivated by the cross and we make use of Christ's Spirit in us, and we begin to live out His character and example. He is both the motivation, the means, and the model for our lives. And over time, we begin to submit more and more things to the Lordship of Jesus. And the more we behold who He is, the more we see what He has done, the more we live out His life. We are transformed and become in practice, what we already are in position. Catch that? We become in practice what we already are. He says, you are my followers. I have called your name. You are following me. And slowly, what we are, His sons, His daughters, brothers and sisters, disciples, we become that in practice. We our husbands differently, wives differently, mothers and fathers differently, workers and friends differently. We have a way that is different. We live like Jesus. We live for Jesus. We love as Jesus loved us. We live like Jesus and lastly, we're not just worshipers and families and disciples. We are ambassadors and this is maybe one of the hardest ones for us. We were citizens of the world. And we have become ambassadors of the King. Missionaries of the world. That's what the Bible said, right? It says, 
in verse 18, all this is from God. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 20 says, therefore, you are ambassadors. Not, you ought to be ambassadors. You guys should think about signing up for ambassadorship. No, 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 no. You are ambassadors. We at one time lived in the world with the world and for ourselves. And that changed when God sent His Son into the world to redeem it. Jesus was sent on mission into the world in order to restore man's relationship with God in the same way we are ambassadors. Jesus prayed in John 17, don't take him out of the world, but I'm sending him into the world just as you sent me. And it's not a missionary to go, well, I guess I'm an ambassador, a missionary to the world. What foreign country am I going to? I'll tell you. You're going to the foreign country of your home, the foreign country of your neighborhood, the foreign country of your job, the foreign country of your city, the foreign country of the community and the soccer club that you're a part of because you're a part of it. That's where you're an ambassador first and foremost. We don't become missionaries by doing grand outreach events for our church. And we may do that, but we become missionaries by sending 300 people out into the city and being ambassadors of Christ wherever you're at. Whether that's at the coffee shop, at your job, in your home, in your neighborhood, wherever. That's who we are. We've been restored to be that. To display Jesus. To live like Jesus. To love like Jesus. To, dare I say, talk about Jesus. In Christ, we are missionaries sent into the culture to restore all things to God through Jesus. And that starts first in our homes and overflows into our city. Essentially, if we were to summarize it, all that God desired for us in the beginning has been fulfilled in Christ and given to us. We have been restored for those who put their faith in Christ. And through faith in Christ, we are a people and we're becoming more of a people and we're calling other people to do basically two things. Love God and love others. That was what Jesus says was the whole fulfillment of the law. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 5.14 it says, the love of Christ has controlling, it is controlling us. And Christ had the deepest and most perfect love for the Father. And He had the most perfect love for us. And that's what we live out. As I close, and I mean it, I know people are like, okay, here comes another half hour. Um, whatever, I know who you are. <laughs> Revelation 21.5, you'll see that verse a lot. And that's at the end of the Bible. It describes the day when Jesus ushers in the new heavens and the earth. And the old is really gone completely. And He says this, Behold, I am making all things new. There will be a day when things are perfect. Right now, you'll never be a perfect worshiper. You'll never be a, 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 a perfect family member or a perfect disciple or a perfect ambassador in this life. But there will be a day when final restor restoration comes. But even if we are still being refined the rest of our lives, we are restored right now. We are new creations right now. The old is gone. The new has come. In Christ, the guilt is gone. The shame is gone. The loneliness is gone. The hopelessness is gone. The purposelessness is gone in Christ. We are not defined 
by our pedigree. We're not defined by our education. We're not defined by our achievements. We're not defined by our mistakes. We're not defined by the things that people have done to us. We are not defined by what we've done or have not done or what people have done to us because it has all been overcome by Jesus and what He has done for me. I need only believe. I need only believe. And when you believe, I believe God restores you as a worshiper and He restores you as a family member and He restores you as a disciple and an ambassador. And it is time for us to stop listening to the world and even to your flesh who tells you who you are or who you must be and open our Bibles and start listening to who God says you are in Christ. This table is, we should just put restore to restore on here. Maybe we will. It is the reminder that you have a new life because it's so apt to be forgotten. And it's forgotten because you screw up. Maybe none of you did. I did this week. Many times. Some, I don't know, but the Lord does. And so we come to this table reminded not only we have a new life, but He promises renewal again and again and again and again and again. And we're reminded because it's a table that it's a shared life. We're not alone. We're a family taking this meal together. And it's with a view of a final destination. You realize that we are here, and then the closer we grow with one another, we will remember one another in eternity. We have eternal relationships being built now that will live on forever. We can't say that for everybody. How awesome is that? So I pray that that you'll begin to understand who we are as a people and who we are as a church. We'll talk more about next week. But that you can explain to somebody in Christ, this is what we started off as. It was awesome and things went wrong. Really broke. But in Christ, it's all restored. What's restored? You no longer idolatry or worship or the whole thing. Grab that book. But today, as we close, let's sing as a people who is truly joyful for their salvation. As a people who are truly, like, I know I'm restored. I mean, I feel kind of busted and broken, but I know I'm restored. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You. We thank You and praise You for what You have done. The only thing we bring to You, Lord, is our sin. And though we pretend we are strong and pretend we are wise, we know that we are weak and we are fools. Forgive us for our pride. For those of us, Father, who are despairing right now because they still feel guilty and ashamed of what they have done or what's been done to them or what they have failed to do, Lord, would You show them that all that is absorbed and overwhelmed by what Jesus has done for us. That He has adopted us freely. He said, you are my son, you are my daughter. And you have been brought into a family. And I'm going to teach you how to walk. And I'm going to walk with you as you do. And I'm going to use you as a tool to proclaim my glories. Would you make us that people? It is in the name of Jesus we pray and hope. Amen.